0: LGBTQ plus health is important. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios in St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Faith Daniel. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, slash questioning youth are a part of all communities and should be celebrated. Unfortunately, LGBTQ plus youth experience substantial amounts of stigma, harassment, discrimination, and other forms of abuse that can put them at increased risk of poor health outcomes. According to the CDC's 2017 Youth Risk Behavior Survey, LGBTQ youth are more likely to have seriously considered suicide, been forced to have sex, used illicit drugs, and misused prescription opioids. Barriers experienced by LGBTQ youth often cause them to avoid seeking care. With me today to discuss LGBTQ plus health and the ways SBH works to provide LGBTQ plus friendly care is Dr. Nadia Scott, Director of Adolescent Health Services. Welcome, Dr. Scott.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Faith.
0: And thank you so much for joining us again. We've done a podcast before and our audience loved it. So I'm so, so happy to have you back. And today we're going to be diving into LGBTQ plus health. And of course, I know you're going to say that it's a natural thing to be exploring your sexuality as a youth. So could you provide some more information for our youth about how to explore sexuality safely?
1: Yeah, I mean... I was drawn to adolescent medicine because, you know, you get to work with kids who are sort of not young children anymore, and they're starting to become adults. And a big part of that is discovering the different different aspects of your personal identity. I mean, you may have, of course, have Lots of other parts of your identity that may have been really with you since the time you were born, like your ethnicity or your religious background. But for many people, adolescence is a time to explore who they are um, romantically and sexually. And what kind of questions
0: have you um, or do you typically ask your patients to kind of start getting them thinking about that?
1: Well, for us, we always have a portion of the well child visit and actually any visit that I have that's called the heads assessment, which is something that we do. We ask the parent or the caregiver to step out of the room and we talk to the teenager one-on-one. The reason why that's really important is because they may not be comfortable revealing personal aspects about their life in front of their parent. And what we know is that if they're not sharing that with at least a doctor, that they may not have the correct information going forward um, or they may feel that they can't talk about it to anyone. And we really wanna create a space where they feel comfortable. And we really, you know, we try to create an environment where we're very open and, you know, we give them the opportunity to express themselves. So usually we will try to ask open-ended questions such as, um, can you tell me a little bit more about your life? What do your friends like most about you? What do you like most about yourself? You know, we do go into more specifics, like when you develop crushes on people, do you like boys, do you like girls? Are you Is that not part of your life yet? And when you think about yourself, how would you identify yourself? Do you consider yourself a girl, a boy, or again, is that not something you've really thought of addressing before? And the other thing is to just sort of, you know, not have only them explain their identity, but also make, in general, the healthcare space an open space. You know, sometimes you can do things like on the name tag, having the provider's preferred pronouns, so that that brings up in a non-challenging way that these are things that we might be addressing during your visit. Yeah, and I love
0: that you ask, like, all these questions that may not necessarily kind of alert to a team, like, hey, they're trying to figure out, like, my sex orientation or trying to Mm -hmm. help me even figure that out, but just naturally having conversations about what you like, what you don't like, or even just, like, how um, they dress. Or just how they express themselves, so that's awesome, yeah. And even with the pronouns, too, is so important because it comes down to even like security to reception to the doctor and patients are interacting with everyone, so it's important to use the right pronouns and you know just to um, greeting people with respect. And, of course, as you mentioned, you know teens are exploring their their self, they're exploring their sexual orientation. Have you had any examples of maybe conversations that you've had to had with parents about when their teens are starting to explore their sexual orientation or any advice for parents um that are kind of trying to figure that out with their teens?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know it's it's a very interesting thing. Obviously, parenting a teen, can be challenging for you know parents in many different ways and the thing that's unique about our patients that you know are in the LGBT community as i was saying before it's an aspect of their identity that they in most cases will not share with their family and and by that i mean that usually most people are the same race or ethnicity as their parents. They're also most likely, especially in the case of children, the same religion as their parents. But most lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people come from families that don't share that same background, which creates a natural deficit of understanding that doesn't exist in those other types of sort of identity. Which can cause a lot of conflict because a parent, you know can obviously love, care for, want their child to have the best things in life, but they may not know how to do that in these cases where they haven't had a lot of experience. So that's why you know we really need to not only give the teenager support, but give the parent support and you know, explain to them that they're doing a great job you know, that these are some resources they can look into. I mean, you know, we do sometimes unfortunately have patients who come in and the home environment really is difficult and challenging and not supportive and there's not things we can do to help. But much more frequently, it's parents who are caring and loving, but they just need some help and assistance to understand their child and to get, let their child grow into the person they're going to be as an adult.
0: Yeah, it's almost like they need support in supporting their children in their transition or just understanding their identity and celebrating their identity. And I know that, you know, you're taking care of not just the adolescent even though it may seem that way, you know, you're taking care of the whole family unit. And could you kind of go into a little bit more detail about why it's important for patients to disclose their sexual orientation to you?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it is very hard. And obviously the process of coming out for each person is different. And, you know, people decide how and when they want to disclose that part of their identity. And unfortunately, it's a part of an ex- a life experience that straight cisgender people don't really have to face. For us in the healthcare environment, it's important for them to disclose to us because then we can adapt our care to suit their individual needs to make sure that they're as healthy as possible. So that's why, you know, again, as you pointed out in your introduction, a lot of times people in this community are not getting appropriate care or they've had bad experiences with the healthcare system. And that makes them reluctant to want to go to doctors or trust doctors. And it makes sense. So it's really our responsibility to try to make it a place where they feel it's safe to discuss those things so that we can be the best doctor for them.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that lends itself to the topic of trauma-informed care and being sure that we're meeting people where they are so that we can create an environment that they can disclose their sexual orientation. So you can give them the information that they need so that diagnoses don't get missed and so that they can get the medications that they need and the the education that they need especially when it comes to sex and reproductive health Um, and that's something I wanted to delve into next actually was going through some like fact or fiction like series if you would like to call it and I would list a few things about like sexual health that some teens within the LGBTQ plus community probably think or may not um, know about um, or just like rumors that have been said and we would need your help in kind of educating them about like is that True or is that false? So the first one is lesbian or women who have sex with women can't get STDs. True or false?
1: So this is false. The first thing to note is that sexual orientation and sexual behavior may be different. So again, when we talk to patients, we want to know about both about their orientation, which means who they state they are attracted to sexually, but then also who they may be having sex with. We know, we don't know understand all the reasons, but we actually know that women who identify as lesbian or bisexual are more likely to have a teenage pregnancy than women who I identify as heterosexual. So obviously we know that there, sometimes is an occurrence that people are having sex with men even if they are have a homosexual orientation now the other thing is so you know that's why we really talk about behavior in addition to orientation and you know again we want to address safety generally in sex not only sort of physical safety but also the mental health of the person as they delve into these sexual and romantic relationships. We tend to do not only some universal testing for conditions such as gonorrhea and chlamydia and offering HIV to everyone who comes in, despite their rep- whatever they report as far as their sexual orientation and behavior, but also site-specific testing if they need it. And then, of course, based on if they have any symptoms you know we may do different types of tests as well so it definitely is something that can occur again there's an infection called bacterial vaginosis which is more likely to occur in sexually active people but is not technically a sexually transmitted infection but also lesbians are more at risk for that condition. So, you know, it's important to talk about sexual safety no matter what sort of people are reporting. And again, as we sort of talked about before, sometimes people don't disclose everything to health providers. So that's why we have to, you know, sort of be really sure that we're protecting their safety and their health. Mm
0: -hmm. yeah that's so important thank you for that and also kind of answers the question I was asking before about why it's so important to disclose your sexual orientation to your provider because just like you said um which I didn't know that lesbian um and bisexual identified um women are at higher risk with certain conditions so that's so important um and there is that like very very false um idea that lesbians or women who have sex with women like can't get STDs because I think there's this idea that, okay, well, I can't get pregnant. So like all else is like, no worries when there's so much more to worry about. The next one I was going to ask is it is easier to transmit STDs via
1: anal sex, true or false? So this in many cases is true most likely that has to do with physiologic aspects of the mucosa of the anus which may have you know developed small tears during anal sex which can transmit can transmit infections more easily the other thing to be aware of is that having a condition like gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis can make it more likely to transmit other infections like HIV. So that is true. And, you know, it has to do with sort of aspects of the physiology. You know, obviously it's not the person, it's just a physiologic aspect. In the same way, that young people are, in general, both young men and young women are more at risk for sexually transmitted infections. Part of that may be due to, you know, increased sexual partners, things of that nature. But another aspect of it is just the the changing mucosa of um, the cervical, the cervix when a woman is young, as opposed to when she's older. So, it is true and that's why, you know, we definitely have to always discuss like the safest way to have sex. And we, you know, we have to also be aware how are people having sex?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And I think
0: that that even is a better question. It's just like, how are you having sex? You know, is it like anally? And then like, who are you having sex with? And then we don't even have to go into saying like, are you having sex with a man or a woman? It's just like, who. And and then that gives you the information that you need in order to provide the best care for your patients. So super, super important to be talking to your providers about your sexual orientation and your sexual behaviors. My next statement is questioning your identity and sexuality is a phase, true or false?
1: So that's false. You know, many people in the LGBT community really have a sense of their sexual orientation from a very young age and you know they carry that through life it's sort of like being left-handed or right-handed it's something that's just born innately in you and while there's fewer left-handed people than right-handed people first of all left-handed people are just as good as right-handed people and we should—we never presume that left-handed people are all of a sudden going to become right-handed, because they're both equally as good. They're just different. So we know that it's really not a phase. Again, like you spoke of before, adolescence might be the time when they explore it more, right? Because all teenagers are sort of starting to explore the world of romantic love peer relationships that may become even more important than the family relationships during teenage years. That's all part of adolescent psychological development. So they may be exploring their identity more, but it's not because it's just a phase that they're going through. It's that that's their true self, but they really, this is the first time in their lives that they have begun to explore it.
0: Mm -hmm. And probably the first time in their life where they even had the opportunity to without kind of the constraints of the world on them, you know, when when you're a little kid, your parents like pick your outfits for you, they do your hair for you, so you don't really have a lot of self expression or space to kind of explore. So you're right. You're naturally going to do that when you're an adolescent. You have a little bit more freedom. Um, You're in high school, so you're around different people, too, um, that may be expressing themselves um, more. Um, So you get to kind of, you know, pick and choose what you want to do. And this statement that, you know, sexual identity is a phase is so dangerous because, you know, conversion camps are a thing and those conversion programs which are so dangerous and harmful for people's like mental health and are it's like a complete hoax i can't believe they're a thing so it's really reassuring and nice to hear that from you and i loved your analogy about the left and right hand so i hope a lot of people take that with them
1: yeah i mean Um, we have to remember that like not so very long ago homosexuality was listed in the dsm as a mental disorder So it really has been, this perception has been around for a long time. And again, you know, when you sort of spoke in the beginning that, which is something we know that people that belong to the LGBT community have higher rates of mental illness, suicidal ideation, other uh, aspects of mental health, it's typically not because there's something wrong with them. It's that there's something wrong with how they're perceived and treated by society. And so they seek comfort in ways that are not therapeutic. So again, that's the fault of us, you know, and not them.
0: Right. You're so right. It's the fault of society and just pure ignorance that has created all of this And I really appreciated that point about, you know, it being listed as a mental illness. And, you know, not that long ago was gay marriage just legalized. It was like in 2015, I believe. So, I mean, there's still a lot of stigma around it. I feel like there's a lot more acceptance around like the L, the G, and the B. And I think we're now starting to be more open to the T and that plus part of things. So I'm really happy about that movement and I think that it's felt in like the healthcare world, in like the social services world and beyond. So that's really important. My next one is being LGBTQ plus is unnatural and can be cured and kind of like add to what we were talking about before.
1: Yeah. So again, obviously it's false. Homosexuality transgenderism have been around as long as there have been people. So, (laughs) um, obviously it's a natural phenomenon and, you know, it's, again, it's our disease as society to see this as a sickness. So, you know, we're the ones that need the work. We're the ones that need The cure, if you want to think about it that way. And beliefs like that are incredibly damaging. I mean, you mentioned conversion therapy, you know, or these camps. And luckily, we're getting to a place where government is starting to understand how damaging those things can be to children and to actually make laws that prevent them. But still, you know, even if laws change sometimes that doesn't change the hearts of people but they're incredibly damaging they really there's tons of suicides associated with conversion therapy because then you also have to remember that the person themselves they may not understand that what's wrong is that sort of thought process and they may even feel it themselves that you know um There's a documentary and I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, it had a, you know, a woman who attempted suicide and she said, I know that God will forgive me for this act, but he can't forgive me for being gay. Mm. And she really felt that because that's all she had ever been led to believe in her life. No one had ever told her that that was wrong and she was like but I can't not be this person so that that creates such a conflict in the person that it is incredibly dangerous for them you know so obviously it's not a disease to be cured
0: it hits home almost when you talk, when you mention the cure, um, what the disease that needs to be cured is within our society and how we perceive people within the LGBTQ plus community that is, so, so important and that like resonates with me because, you know, so many people have lost their lives from the ignorance of others when there's absolutely nothing wrong. And like what I mentioned in my introduction is like, it should be celebrated, this identity. And again, lends to why it's so important that we have to talk to our healthcare providers about our sexual orientation, about our thoughts, about our feelings, about our partners. You know, domestic violence also happens within LGBTQ plus relationships as well, even though it may not be perceived just as serious or not. So it's just like these um, very harmful, harmful rumors just like pack on and just add. And then I feel like it almost like pops like a balloon for people that are part of the community dealing with so much stigma. So thank you so much for sharing that. My next one is if someone uses PrEP. And I'd love if you would kind of explain what PrEP is and how it all works. They don't need
1: to use condoms, true or false. So that's false. So PrEP is a very wonderful medical intervention of, I would say, about the past 20 years. It's typically a medication called Truvada, but also Descovy can be used. And it's taken once a day. And it stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis which means you take this medicine in order to prevent the development of HIV. And it's really, really highly effective, particularly in men who have sex with men, like around 95, 96% effective at preventing the person from acquiring HIV if it's taken as directed. You know, it can also be used in women, women who have sex with women, or anyone who thinks they could be at risk for acquiring HIV. Slightly less effective in women. Again, that is like a physiologic difference due to how the medicine manifests in the anus versus the vagina, but really highly effective at preventing HIV. So it's really advanced things so much in preventing HIV. However, it only prevents HIV. Again, there are many other sexually transmitted infections that PrEP does not prevent, like gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, herpes. And the best intervention we have for preventing those things are condoms. So it's very important. You know, PrEP is helping you take care of your sexual health, but condoms also are the other part of that thing to really have the safest sex possible. You know, I recommend people use both.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for folks that can use birth control, it's like birth control prep and condoms are like the best thing. So I think it's always like condoms coupled with something else if you can. And if that's something you choose to. to be on to use if you agree to kind of like because there's always something else and even though prep kind of like helps with one thing you want to help with other things similarly with birth control I'm on birth control but like I want to also protect against S T D. so it's like they work hand in hand yeah yeah and my final one is if you've had sex with someone once you no longer have to use condoms with that person true or false and I know that's a complicated
1: one <laughs> Right, so that's false. I mean, one thing that people can also do for their, you know, one aspect of safe sex is sort of monogamous sex, but that might not be right for every person, um, you know, especially my patients are young, you know, they may not have sort of settled into having a monogamous long term partner. So people should continue to use condoms. I mean, first of all, if someone has a new sexual partner, they should be tested for sexually transmitted infections, but they should also continue to use condoms. And I tell my patients, it's really a way to demonstrate that you have respect for them and also respect for yourself and your body,
0: yeah, that's so that's right. And you could even do it together. You know, like you can both get tested together. You know, monogamous sex is, I guess, like the like the safest other than, you know, abstinence. but getting tested regularly with your partner may help alleviate that like awkward conversation or you just feeling like, you know, you're singling them out. You just do it together. And that makes it a little bit easier. But you are so right. Like, like getting tested, condoms, it's so super, super important. My next thing I wanted to kind of delve into a little bit is how can folks engaging in non-heterosexual sex stay safe and do you have any tips for them?
1: Well, again, a lot of my tips are applicable to people in non-heterosexual or heterosexual relationships. First having partners with which you can be open and have meaningful, respectful conversations about sex and sexual issues is very important. And unfortunately, something that not everyone has. And that can decrease someone's safety in many different ways. So that's also always an important aspect. Again, if there's a partner who has a penis using condoms, if um, a partner with a vagina using another type of barrier protection, such as a dental dam. And again, you know, there's, you know, things that can be used to cover the fingers for digital penetration. So there's lots of different aspects of safe sex. And again, like we were talking about getting tested regularly, making sure that you discuss your sexual health with your provider so that they can also help you So that's what I, you know, would say. Again, you know, there's other aspects, like if people are using toys to appropriately clean them, things like that. All of those things can increase um, sexual health. Yeah, I had I had noted
0: those points. To yeah, like cleaning your toys properly, um, making sure reading the instructions. Sometimes like you can't use certain lubes um, with different ones that are made from different materials, like silicone versus like a glass. And hand hygiene, super super important. I think that sometimes people forget that you know if you have long nails, like really um, cleaning under your nails because your nails can get kind of dirty pretty quickly. Dental dams, like you mentioned, and I think people refer to it as like a female con them, but it should be like an internal condom. Those could be used for anal sex as well. That could be super, super helpful. And just what you mentioned too, open dialogue, being able to talk about your pronouns, being able to have safe conversations and trust them. Yeah, super, super important. Thank you for that. And to close things out, I wanted to get your thoughts about anything that you've noticed about LGBTQ plus health in the Bronx or things that you would want community to know about LGBTQ
1: plus health in the Bronx? Well I think that it's really it's an important question because again many people who are LGBT who live in the Bronx may also be a member of a racial or ethnic minority and we know that that minority within a minority requires even more special care because they may be receiving discrimination from both those communities and that can make them feel even more isolated and stigmatized for example in new york city the rate of hiv positivity in black men who have sex with men is higher than the overall population it's approximately 45% positivity and We don't know all the reasons for that, but it may be due to sexual risk taking, which often can be linked back to people sort of, again, using a maladaptive coping mechanism of taking sexual risks or being made to take sexual risks because of sort of the situation that they're in, you know, that they may not be able to have a partner that they know a lot about because they sort of have to hide their sex and their sexuality from their family because they come from a family where that's much more stigmatized. And again, you know, so those are sort of things that require special care because that can be a group that receives even more discrimination and in that way, you know, worse health outcomes
0: yeah for sure i mean and you're kind of speaking to the idea of intersectionality of having more than one identity compounded so it's like for me for example being like a female a black female that lives in the south bronx who identifies as lesbian and you know i'm feeling the discrimination of being just like a black person and then the discrimination of being a woman and then on top of that the discrimination of being a lesbian and then you put that all together and then you know that creates a whole another tier of discrimination like they're not all separate because you know we're not i'm not like a separate being you know those all things make up who i am um so you're right and in the bronx that i'm sure it happens like Oh, so much more. I mean, majority of our population is black and Latinx. So and they're also the most uh, marginalized uh, minority. So I can imagine being a part of the and I feel it, you know, being a part of the community and then feeling all those things, even with language barriers too. being um, an immigrant as well. You know, just like you keep compounding all these identities because that's how we're made. So thank you so, so much for speaking on this topic. It's so important. We appreciate your expertise and all of your education that you're giving to our audience. And I'd like to thank our audience for joining us. Um, If you'd like to make an appointment or speak with Dr. Scott, please call 718-960-3730. Thank you so, so much for joining us. All right. Thank you, (laughs) Faith.